Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. How's it going? It's going well. Um, it's just us today on the show. Alex is out, and there's plenty of stuff to get to. I do want to preview a little bit about a conversation I had with Cara Salvatore, who's one of our trials reporters, who's covering that Alec Murdoch trial. It's the murder trial that everybody is watching. I think plenty of people know the basics of it, but it's pretty messy. And so I wanted to get her on the show to walk us through exactly what she's heard as she's been covering it in court. Um, So by the time you listen to this, it's possible we may have a verdict as well. But I think this will give some context to no matter what that jury decides. Yeah, I'm super excited to listen to that conversation. This this really is the case that everyone is talking about. And the coverage has been breathless, to say the least. I mean, in fairness to the media, there's just so much to this one. And so it's hard to cut through some of the noise. There's just a lot of tendrils you can go on. Um, But yeah, super interesting to get into that. Very excited. Well, speaking of cases that everyone is talking about, the other big case this week is the Supreme Court's review of the Biden administration's massive student debt relief plan. And we are actually not going to talk about that here on Pro Se today, but that is just because our friends over at our sister show, The Term, have a whole fantastic show digging into the hours and hours of arguments in that case. Yeah, we're going to so, leave that one to our real experts. You know, exactly. Natalie Rodriguez and Jimmy Hoover are going to hold down the fort on that one. You know, I would really encourage people to go over to our website or just, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts, search for Law360 and the term, you'll find it. And they do a great job. Well, I do want to kick us off with something that I kind of wish Alex were here for. I'm going to call this segment Trade Law Without a Law. <laughs> He's really missing the wrong week, but we couldn't resist the story. So what trade thing are we talking about, Haley? Yeah, we're going to do our best here. Apologies, uh, apologies, Alex, but let's give it a whirl. Amber, we're going to talk about Apple Watches. Do you have an Apple Watch? I don't, but I always say that the biggest fan of the Pro Se podcast is actually my father-in-law, and he loves his Apple Watch, so he will okay. want to hear this segment. I ask because the future of Apple Watch sales in the U.S. is a little uncertain at the moment. Medical technology company Massimo and Apple are in the midst of a big patent fight before the International Trade Commission. And depending on how things go, Apple Watch imports could end up being banned. Now, of course, you know, an import ban does not mean someone's going to go take the ITC is going to roll up to your father-in-law's home and take his Apple Watch from him. But it is still a big thing. (laughs) It's a big thing, and it could mean he can't get new versions And if if this falls a certain way. That's also, often we talk about patent stuff or trade things, and it feels very pie in the sky. You don't really fully understand the technology we might be talking about. But here, a lot of people own those Apple Watches. So I am interested in the implications of a ban like this and all of that. But let's get up to speed with how we got here in the first place. Absolutely. It's, it's a really broad case, honestly. So Massimo is claiming that Apple infringed its patented technology for measuring oxygen in the blood. This is a non-invasive method for measuring blood oxygen saturation that actually just uses the light passed through the body, which I, did, I always wondered how that worked. So uh, Yeah, that's very cool, actually. It's fascinating. 
So Massimo says that it met with Apple in 2013 to discuss potentially incorporating its technology into Apple products. But then Apple allegedly started hiring some of Massimo's engineers and managers, and these people were pretty important and had access to sensitive technical information. So that is what Massimo is claiming. In January, an ITC judge actually held that the Apple Watch does infringe one of Massimo's patents, but she also cleared Apple of infringing four other Massimo patents. So that brings us to where we are today because that decision is subject to review by the full ITC. And the ITC says that it hopes to have this all wrapped up by early May. I would imagine Apple strongly disagrees that they've infringed anything here. So how did they defend themselves? What, what do they have to say about it? Oh, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's even more heated than just this <laughs> patent, actually. So predictably, Apple does say that it disagrees with this decision. It says that Massimo is the one infringing its patents, actually. And those are the subject of a separate suit in Delaware. And that suit centers on Massimo's smartwatch called the W1 watch. You know what? This is what I love about these kind of patent disputes, that it's always like claims and counterclaims. And some of it ends up in one venue. Some of it may end up in another. So they can get pretty thorny, but also exciting. Exactly. Yeah. And this one is in so many different venues and there are so many different accusations being thrown around here. In the Delaware case, Apple says that Massimo shifted from focusing on hospital equipment, which is what it has traditionally worked on, to consumer wearables. And that was only after Massimo allegedly began its litigation campaign against Apple. Apple says Massimo had a, quote, nefarious potential strategy to remove Apple Watch from the market and make way for Massimo's own watch. But turning back to the case before the ITC, Apple did ask the Patent Trial and Appeal Board to review the patent that was found to be infringed, but the PTAB declined to do so. Okay, yet another venue in the mix exactly. that traditionally happens here. Okay, you know, a blanket ban on something as ubiquitous as Apple Watches seems pretty extreme and would have a lot of implications beyond just Apple's bottom line, right? So what are other people saying about this? I would imagine this is getting a lot of eyeballs. It is. A lot of people are weighing in. That's kind of our most recent development here is that a bunch of different interested parties filed arguments before the ITC, either in support or in opposition to a ban. So the big ones that I want to talk about are doctors and health groups. They say that banning the import of watches could harm public health. One group that advocates for patients with irregular heartbeats told the ITC that the health features of the Apple Watch can help people manage that condition, and a ban would be, quote, downright cruel. A whole slew of other medical professionals made similar arguments, including National Jewish Health and doctors with Stanford and the University of California, San Francisco. So we have these groups on, on one side of things, and then we also have intellectual property advocates on the other side of things saying that declining to ban a product just because it's so popular and so widely used would stifle innovation and encourage infringement. So the group U.S. Inventor argued that protecting patents is far more important than keeping 
infringing smartwatches on the market because the public's interest in the enforcement of IP rights actually outweighs any benefits consumers might receive from their Apple watches. That is an interesting collision of ideas, right? It's like, what's more important to consumers and the public? Is it having these watches or is it protecting IP from other companies? Hard to say, but they're trying to battle that out at the ITC. What are some other takeaways? Anything else we should know while we wait on the full ITC to rule on this? Yeah. One really important thing to note here is that the ITC has actually already held that the Apple Watch infringes different patents. Um, So in that case, the ITC held that the Apple Watch infringes a pair of patents on electrocardiogram technology owned by AliveCore. The commission even issued an import ban in that case, rejecting similar arguments from Apple as to the public health effects of such a ban. But that ban is on pause at the moment because AliveCore is appealing PTAB decisions, finding that the patents are actually invalid. So once again, we have too many venues at play here. (laughs) Frankly, too many things at play in general to try and explain. But there's a lot going on. Very, very interesting case that, like you said, I mean, I have to imagine a ban like this too would affect you know, customer support, even if you are fine with keeping your current Apple Watch for as long as it lives, you know, maybe you're not going to have access to parts needed for repairs and stuff like that. So it's a lot to watch. And that is a, a pun that I intended to make there. Oh, Haley, love how you've ended this segment. Thank you so much. All eyes have been on the trial of disgraced South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch, who's facing charges of murdering his wife and son. The trial's been full of twists and turns, including key revelations about how his legal career was unraveling after he stole money from his firm. To discuss the trial, we're joined today by senior trials reporter Cara Salvatore, who's been covering the case. Welcome back to the show, Cara. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be back. We have a doozy to talk about today. Uh, This case has so many moving parts. I mean, full disclosure for all the listeners, I even watched a Netflix documentary about the Murdoch family. There's so much to get into. And I'd just like to start with Alex Murdoch himself. Can you give us some context about who he is? Yes. And you're right. It's a doozy. And I can't lie. I watched the Netflix documentary, too. I had to. He is a lawyer in an area of South Carolina called the Low Country. And his family has been there for, I mean, over a century. So his great-grandfather founded a civil law firm in 1910. That's been part of the source of sort of the importance of their name. But alongside that, his grandfather and his father were both the local solicitor for decades, which is like the prosecutor. So they have had these longstanding ties with law enforcement in the area. I mean, going back before he was born. And they know local um, police chiefs. His defense lawyer is actually a sitting state senator. Two of the prosecutors in this case even 
talked of knowing Alec's dad um, earlier in their careers. So the family is sort of enmeshed with sort of all these structures of power in the area. That's really interesting context to the rest of this story to understand that he's a prominent attorney from a prominent legal family. With that background, let's get into the actual alleged crime that we're talking about. What do prosecutors say happened? Okay, so I don't know actually how far to back up with this because there's one version of the story where it started, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And there's another version of the story where I could just tell you about the day. But on the night of June 7th, 2021, he comes home from visiting his parents, calls 911 and says that he found his wife and son shot to death in the dog kennels on their estate. So that's the short version. The longer version that prosecutors have been telling has much more about the financial context around this because they say that's his motive. And he apparently had been stealing money from clients and from the firm for years. And he actually admits to all this. He says, yes, I was in financial trouble. He also says he had a two-decade-long opiate addiction. So there is a lot of context, but he says, I would never kill my family. And, and by all accounts, he loved his wife and son very much, and they had great relationships. I do want to discuss pretty extensively, let's get into it, about what Alec Murdoch um, had going on with this sort of financial ruin looming over him and the things he'd done at his firm. Can you tell me about sort of that storm cloud that was following his life? Yeah, there is a laundry list of settlements in which he's alleged to have funneled them into accounts that he created to set up to look like they were, they were this other legitimate business. There's a business um, that they send clients to a lot of time to structure their settlements into annuities. He set up a bank account with a very similar name and started sending money there. How much money are we talking, Cara? Well, we actually don't know. Everybody agrees that it's at least millions. But there were really two examples that were focused on most heavily in the trial. And one of those was a $792,000 um, fee award from a trial that took place around January of 2021. So he had co-counsel. The co-counsel sent over the checks from his client trust account. One of the most interesting things is that the people who found this out, it started with his legal secretary or his paralegal. And she said, I've got the expenses. I've got those checks, but where are the checks for these fees? And Alec, did what everybody says that he always did. He started lying just fluidly and easily and saying they're in my co-counsel's account. So the prosecution has unfolded this story of how Alec was able to get more money from other sources to sort of restore these fees to where they should be after people started asking questions. But on the day of the murders was one of those key times when people did start asking questions. The firm's CFO 
came to him and said, what's going on with these fees? And the prosecutors say, you know, this was like a choke point. So basically what you're telling me is that he had this longstanding scheme that he's not even really disputing that he would take money and funnel it into this sort of secretive account, but that he'd put it back before people noticed. But this happens to be a time when people started to notice. Yeah, most times he wouldn't even put it back. When people were starting to notice, he was like, uh-oh. And that's when prosecutors say that he killed, he needed a distraction because people were starting to find out. But he had been doing it. They believe he'd been doing it since about 2010 or 2011. And he got on the stand and said, I won't dispute that. So we definitely need to talk about the fact that he actually testified. But maybe, you know, we can talk about that in a little bit. He got on the stand and said, I don't dispute that it started around 2010, 2011. But nobody found out because he clients just trusted him. His partners, his law firm partners trusted him. You know, he could look Anybody in the eye, the prosecution will tell you, and just make them believe what he wanted them to believe. Before we get more into his testimony, because I do want to talk about that and some of the highlights of this trial, I'm a little confused in a lot of the coverage I've read about this about exactly what they're saying his motive was in, you know, if he did in fact murder his wife and son. Was it truly just to distract from what he was doing? Is, Is that what was alleged here? Yeah. And the question you're asking is a good one because it almost stretches credibility. With uh, with, no normal person would say, I'm, my house of cards is about to come down. Let me kill the closest people in the world. But they are saying that he is that person who would do that. He was so desperate that he needed to shift the focus from himself and transform himself into this sympathetic character, which would fix so many problems for him, including this big problem we haven't talked about, which was a civil case that was hanging over his head. And that civil case had to do with a boat crash in February of 2019. So about a little over two years before these murders that we're talking about. His son, Paul, allegedly was driving this boat and it crashed into a bridge piling and one of Paul's friends was killed and he was allegedly drunk driving. So Alec is facing a huge civil liability over this. The lawyer opposing him came in and testified he was going to ask for $10 million because everybody knows Alec is so rich and... He wanted that problem to go away. He wanted to be a sympathetic character that no jury would ever, you know, find liable. I think it's been really interesting to hear the prosecution also portray him as someone who very much understands the legal system and understands potential sympathies of juries in a, in a suit like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way they're using, you know, the core of who he is against him is incredible. The core of who he is is this talented plaintiff's lawyer. He understands the ins and outs of the case that he would be a defendant in, like the boat case. He can understand the ins and outs of this case. And he has been an assistant solicitor with his dad, although he never took that up full time. And, you know, again, another way they use the core of who he is is this focus on the lying. He is such a good liar. He can 
convince you anyone of anything. Somebody testified that he could talk to a fence post. He never met a stranger. So they're using that against him because they're saying that's what he's doing in this trial as well. This is a really interesting portrait that the prosecution is is establishing here, that it's a wealthy family, with a lot of potential entitlement, that he found himself way over his head for, you know, the, the suit, as you said, was looming. These This financial malfeasance was being discovered. And so that's their side of the story. But we did actually hear from the man himself and got a glimpse of his counter argument about what was really happening. So let's get into that. What did Alex say when he took the stand? How did he defend himself? Yeah, he made this obviously very unusual choice to take the stand and testify in his own defense. And he said that he's made a lot of mistakes. He admitted that he had all these financial skeletons in the closet. Um, His lawyer even used that phrase in his closing arguments, but that it wasn't coming to a head. Wasn't like some storm was brewing and that it was about to explode on this day or in this week. You know, he he'd been doing these things for years, and there wasn't anything special about this moment. So that's been his main defense. And I think, interestingly, he has been indicted, from what I understand, for some of these financial crimes as well. But he did not plead the fifth one time. Kara, I know in addition to the financial malfeasance that we've been talking about, he also testified about his opiate addiction. Can you tell me about what he said there and how that plays into the prosecution and the defense of the case? Yeah, he he talked at length about an addiction that he's had since about the early 2000s when he said he was prescribed opiates after a knee injury. And he said he's been addicted ever since. It's gotten worse over time. And in December 2017, he went to a detox facility for the first time. I do think that this was one of the most poignant parts of his testimony, one of the most sympathetic parts of his testimony. And it's something that a lot of people probably can relate to on the jury or have some experience with or know somebody. At least that's what they always say in the opioid trials that I cover. Sure. For the prosecution, you know, this is just one more thing that makes him this chaotic character who is capable of doing many different things, including killing. And for the defense, this shows the struggles and the battles that he was dealing with. But somebody who lies and takes pills isn't necessarily a murderer. Right. It also seems like a lot of him admitting to this addiction and talking about it openly was to explain why the financial malfeasance was happening, that he was spending a lot on a drug habit, basically. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually one of the big remaining mysteries that has not been solved by this trial. It seems logistically impossible for him to have taken the amount of opiates that would be purchased by the money he's stolen. So one thing prosecutors are saying is we still don't know where this money went. And there are rumors you can read online about it, but those haven't come into trial. Yeah, this case has, again, so many tendrils. So it's it's really kind of fascinating to kind of break down what did make it into this trial. Mm-hmm. I'm interested, 
in that vein about key things that stood out to you as you've been covering this? I know there's a few I want to ask about, but uh, maybe we can start with the jurors actually took a field trip to the crime scene. Can you tell me how that happened? Because I thought that kind of stuff was only for the movies. I've come to understand that this happens a lot more than I had previously thought. And in fact, this judge, Clifton Newman, said that he will grant a visit like this on the request of either side. I believe it was the defense that requested this, although I'm not certain. So what were they going to see exactly? I mean, what was the purpose of of taking the jurors out to the actual estate? I think the idea was for them to understand sort of the spatial relationships and the scale of the area where the murders took place, which is in this sort of group of buildings. The murders took place at the kennels, but there are two other buildings in that area. And then for the jurors also to understand the distance from the main house, which is about about a minute's ride away by golf cart or car. So it's not right next to the main house. And one of the arguments has been, and this this is actually uncontroverted testimony, that if Alex had were in the house at the time, which he says he was, he would not have been able to hear gunshots in the kennels. That's interesting and does kind of make a little more sense about why maybe jurors would need to see this. Because when you say a state, it can mean any number of things. It is kind of hard to picture distances, how sound would travel, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. What other standout moments have you followed or that would you note that the jury may be thinking about as they head into deliberations? It was very poignant listening to all of these lawyers talk about how they had essentially lost a family member in Alec, finding out that he was not the person they had thought he was. And they all echoed that in some respect or in some way. That's going to be really interesting for a jury to parse out, right? If they hear a parade of people saying he was not what they thought and that it was such a betrayal, can that betrayal extend to murder? I mean, it's one thing for it to be a financial crime, but does that sense of betrayal travel through what a jury thinks about him? I think it does. And that's one of the reasons I I'm not sure that Murdoch did himself any favors by testifying because he looked at the jury and testified very apparently sincerely in the same way that many other people came and said that he talked to them sincerely about very various matters. Um, another interesting facet about this trial has been that they started out with six alternate jurors and they are now down to one alternate juror. They dismissed a lot of people for illnesses and COVID and doctor's appointments. And this morning they lost another person who apparently spoke about the case outside of the case, which you're obviously not allowed to do. That's interesting too, because running through almost all of your alternates is not typical. I feel like this, you know, part of what has caught the the zeitgeist around this trial is that there's so many things to unravel here. And then even the trial itself has really been action-packed. It has been. You know, a lot of commentators have said that the financial evidence put them to sleep. But for me, I guess I find that very interesting. It didn't put me to sleep at all. I think that shows the person 
he was on a day-to-day basis. You know, the murder evidence shows who he may have been on one day, but the financial evidence shows who he was in his life. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, like I said, there's been so much to watch here. It's been really interesting to talk with you about where we are to now. Just so our listeners know, we are recording on Thursday. The jury is about to go start deliberations at the time we're recording now. So how fast we get a verdict, unclear. By the time people hear this, we may have one. But I think hopefully this can contextualize how the jury is going to get there one way or the other. Yeah. And, you know, whatever happens, the tragedy does continue for this family because he has a surviving son who may be about to lose his dad to jail. So there's no happy points at the end of this, no matter what the jury concludes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been great to talk through this really thorny one with you. If people want to know more, and boy, there's a lot more to unpack here, come on over to our Law360 website. Cara's got tons of great coverage from the trial. So thanks for all the work on it, Cara. Appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Hi, listeners. I wanted to share a coda to our main story. After we recorded our show, the jury found Alec Murdoch guilty of murdering his wife and son. The following morning, the judge sentenced him to two consecutive life sentences. Thanks again to Cara Salvatore for all of her coverage and explaining to us just what the jury was weighing to reach that verdict. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Amber, you have one that I'm very excited to talk about today. Boy, oh boy, me too. Have we discussed on the show how much I like to sort of zen out and do some arts and crafts stuff when I'm feeling stressed? I don't, at least not with me, but I love to do that too. Yeah, I mean, I really like any number of silly things just as a decompression kind of thing. So for this final segment today, I want to talk about an invitation that the U.S. Supreme Court justices received recently to create some art of their own. This came up when an art collective called Mischief, that is spelled M-S-C-H-F, filed one of several amicus briefs in a trademark suit we've talked about on the show before. It's a case about a parody dog toy modeled after a Jack Daniels model. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm glad you remember it. That's Um, a good one. I would like to remind the listeners that the toy was called Bad Spaniels. I just think that's very funny. So if you want to hear more about the actual case and sort of the ins and outs of everything, you can go back to episode 277 from December. That's when we broke it all down. But basically, the central issue in that case is whether commercial products that include some kind of allegedly expressive content should be given the same First Amendment protections against trademark infringement that more traditionally expressive works like a book or a movie or a piece of art would receive. Right. This is an aside here, but... I got to say, I'm tired of this trend where we do away with vowels and just... (laughs) You don't like this art collective being called mischief with no vowels? I hear you. Just spell it out. Spell it out. It would be just (laughs) as fun. But anyway, that again, that's neither here nor there. What is mischief saying in their filing? So this art group is obviously on the side of bad spaniels. They took an interesting approach, challenging the justices and their law clerks to make art out of these connect the dots drawings using (laughs) colored pencils that the art collective specifically asked the court 
if they could supply to the the justices and the clerks. Oh, wow. Connect yeah. the dots. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I love so many things about this. I love that they have these connect the dots things, and we'll talk a bit more about that. I also love that they were like, hey, we'll send you the colored pencils for it. Let us send those to you. So Mischief wanted to then take the results of this uh, little exercise and ex- display them in an exhibition called Where to Draw the Line. Oh, so of the course. Group, uh-huh, you see where it's going now. The group said the point is to show how art with some cultural commentary is historically well-established, and it's hard to know where to draw the line to make a creation okay or not. I want to read a quote from their filing. Each of you, by virtue of completing one of these drawings, is the executor of an artwork that makes use of cultural iconography. Each of you, by virtue of your position, may decide the fate of artistic expression's ability to freely choose its subject matter. Each of these drawings will be displayed as part of, an, of a gallery show. Will they be rendered illegal prior to the exhibition? Oh, huh, okay. Yeah, I, right? I see their point. It's a fun filing. It's a fun filing. So it sure looks like that. But the big question here is what are these connect the dot drawings of? If I haven't made it clear through my tone of voice in the segment, this filing rules, not, <laughs> not weighing in on the merits of it, but just to say it's, it's so creative. Um, so each person was assigned a drawing by name. Like they're called out. Like one is for Scalia, one is for a clerk by name, like that kind of thing. Wow. And if you go to look at the brief, which oh, I hope everybody does. It's great. You can actually print these out for yourself if you want. You can make these drawings too. Ooh, okay. I didn't even think about that. Oh, sure. This is a project we may need to do. There's 45 of these. They are all riffs on prominent logos. So, you know, it's pretty fun to flip through them to see if, you know, is your favorite company in there? Is a brand that you actually like own some stuff from them? Is that in one of these parody Connect the Dots drawings? I've basically built up this entire segment just to list a few of them. I'm not going to go through 45, but I thought we'd just do a handful. Please. Here's some of the things that's included. Arm and Hammer and Sickle was assigned to Chief Justice John Roberts. <laughs> okay. BDS M&M oh. was given to one of Justice Clarence Thomas's clerks. All right. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Corporate America to one of Justice Sonia Sotomayor's clerks. And then here's two that were given to Alito's clerks. No one out pizzas the butt and <laughs> taco hell. Wow. Come on, I, come on. I think no one out pizzas the butt is my favorite. Well, you know, I, don't, you I, don't, I mean, I haven't seen from. all 45. Though, I think so. everyone should look, find one that speaks to you. This can be your stress relieving art project if you want it to be. Colored pencils obviously suggested. No one's going to ship the colored pencils to our homes, but. Law 360 could. That's true. I, I'm going to put in a request. Yeah. And ex- <laughs> uh, sign off on that expense report for sure. Um, <laughs> but OK, so arguments are scheduled in this case for March 22nd. Um, we will, of course, be covering this at Law 360. There's going to be lots to say. It is actually, you know, we're joking around about it now because this is a very funny filing. But the issues at play here are very impactful. So it's going to be a great one to follow. I am going to have to go now, though, because I've got to work on all 45 of these before March 22nd. So i got to print them out and get going in my, in my office here. Me too. Dang. Going to take the rest <laughs> of the day off. Sorry to my editor. <laughs> I, we have important work to do to be a part of an exhibit. So we got to go. We do. What a great one. Thank you, Amber. Yeah, really appreciate you talking with me today, Haley. Great show. 
We have a bunch of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Cara Salvatore, and our contributing reporters, Ryan Davis and Danny Cass. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. That really helps other people find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. You can also find a link to that filing I talked about if you want to print out your own Connect the Dot artwork. And uh, we will see you back here next week. Thanks.